they took us into a room and basically told us that they were pretty sure she had either trisomy 13 or 18 and told us, you know, that she was incompatible with life. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where you'll gain the knowledge and confidence you need to erase the unknowns of pregnancy and birth and rock the newborn days like a boss. My name is Liesl Team. I'm a fellow mom, labor and delivery nurse, and your host. Each week on this podcast, you'll hear a mix of birth stories, expert interviews, and other fun pregnancy and birth-related content. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Please see mommylabornurse.com slash disclaimer for more details. And now let's get into this week's episode. Happy Monday, you guys. I have a birth story to share with you all this week, and I do want to just give a bit of a warning for this episode because we do talk about child loss. So if you get triggered by that sort of content, I would just skip this episode and tune in next week. But this birth story is really special, and I'm really excited to share this one with you because Shay just did a fabulous job and Lucy. (laughs) Her daughter was on the podcast too for a little bit. You'll hear her (laughs) chime in. Her daughter was diagnosed with something called trisomy 13, which was found at a genetic screening in the first trimester. And for those of you who don't know what trisomy 13 is, it is a genetic disorder that your baby can get when they have an extra 13th chromosome. Okay. So typically we have as humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes and babies with trisomy 13 have an extra one. So with this extra chromosome, it can cause severe mental and physical problems. And unfortunately, this diagnosis is usually associated with a short-term life expectancy, and some babies are not even born alive. Trisomy 13 happens in about one in every 7,400 pregnancies, okay, and about one in between 10,000 and 16,000 births. So it's pretty rare. Your risk of trisomy 13 does go up as you age, but really you can have a baby with trisomy 13 or any genetic anomaly at any age. And even though this specific diagnosis is rare, I wanted to have Shay share her story on the podcast this week about what it's like to receive a life-limiting diagnosis during pregnancy and how to navigate that journey that unfortunately some women do find themselves in. So today we talked about her daughter Imogene, her pregnancy, her birth, and her life. So let's hear from Shay. Calling all first trimester mamas out there. Have you grabbed my totally free first trimester prep pack yet? You totally should if you're in the first trimester. Inside of it, you will find a first trimester checklist to stay on top of all of your early pregnancy tasks with a handy list of don't forgets, how to prepare for prenatal appointments, which is a printable guide to help you learn what to bring, what to expect, and what questions to ask, and a printable weekly pregnancy journal. Yes, that's right. You can use these keepsake-worthy pages to document 
week-by-week symptoms, cravings, best moments, and more. There is one for every single week. It is pretty cool. So to grab all of this for free, simply head over to mommylabornurse.com slash first trimester. That's mommylabornurse.com slash F-I-R-S-T trimester to access your free first trimester prep pack today. Hi, Shay. Welcome to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. Thanks so much for being here today with me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to chat. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your family, where you're from, any, what you're doing right now, <laughs> anything you want to share? <laughs> well, I'm currently uh, nursing our three-week-old newborn daughter. Cool. <laughs> so I am from Vermont. I am a mother of four. I have three living children and I have a daughter who passed away. So we have a four-year-old daughter, our daughter. Then we had another daughter who passed away when she was six months old. She had trisomy 13. And then we have a son who will be two on Sunday, actually. And then our daughter who was born in June. Yeah. Awesome. So you have a full house. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I know those first few weeks too. It's like, you're like kind of still in the fog. So yes. (laughs) thank you for coming on and recording with me today. (laughs) I know it could be like a lot. Sometimes I feel like though, because I've had people come on where there are just a few weeks postpartum or a few months postpartum. And they're like, no, it's like something different (laughs) to do. Like it like breaks up my day, you know? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, definitely. Well, we are going to be talking about your daughter today with trisomy 13, correct? Yes. Yeah. So can you start, if you want to comment maybe on your first pregnancy or, or that birth, if it has anything to do with her pregnancy, you certainly can. But usually what I have people do is kind of start from the beginning. Tell me getting pregnant and what that was like. Well, don't tell me in detail what that was like, but you know, <laughs> tell me, you know, kind of the circumstances and then we'll talk about pregnancy and then we'll talk about her birth. Okay. So we started trying for our second, when our daughter, when our firstborn was about six months old and then we got pregnant pretty much right away with my first, we had elected for the ultrasound at 12 weeks, just for an additional chance to like see her and everything. So we did that with our second pregnancy. And at that ultrasound, they could see that she had a bilater- bilateral cleft lip and palate, and then that she had the increased thickness in her neck, and the nuchal cord or whatever. And they also weren't sure she had a bladder. So from there, they took us into a room and basically told us that they were pretty sure she had either trisomy 13 or 18 and told us you know, that she was incompatible with life. So we had a CVS scheduled for that afternoon where they took a sample from the placenta to check the chromosomes. And then we received the phone call a few days later that she did have full trisomy 13. And so that kind of set out our journey there. We were in Vermont and it was pretty rough because we met with the geneticist and we had made it clear that we weren't interested in terminating the pregnancy, that we just kind of wanted it to, you know, go how it would give her a chance if she could do it. And if not, then we would walk that course. And we, from the beginning, were just constantly encouraged to terminate. Like at that meeting, we were told three times that we should. So every time I had an appointment, we were just waiting to find out if she had passed away. I had ultrasounds at least monthly in the beginning to make sure she hadn't passed away. And then at our 16-week scan, we found out she had a heart defect. 
So that actually opened up the door for us to go down to Boston for Boston Children's Hospital because in Vermont, they can't do the open heart surgery on children. So when we went down to Boston, it was a whole whole other game. Like the care we received down there was a lot different than what we were receiving in Vermont. So that was great. So we were met with them multiple times during pregnancy. And then I was going to be induced when I was 39 weeks, but she had other plans. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to get into that. I know, obviously it was difficult when you found out that she, you know, that all this was going on. Did you have any sort of, I mean, I know this is not the kind of thing that runs in families, but did you have any sort of warning at all? Or it was just like, this is it. I had a gut feeling that something was wrong. And actually like at our dating scan, I had wanted my fiance to come with, but he couldn't come because of work. And then the roads ended up being really bad. So I canceled it and rescheduled. And so when we had our dating scan, like, and everything was fine, I was really confused because I had thought that I was like having a miscarriage or something. Like I had no symptoms. And so I was like, I just knew that something was wrong. So then when we went in for that 12 week scan, and something was wrong. I was like, I knew that that was going on. We've had genetic testing done afterwards on both of us and we're not carriers. So it was just an anomaly that she, cause I had no risk. I was 22 years old when I got pregnant with her. Like there was no, no sign. No reason. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you how was, this will be a difficult question, but like, how was bonding with that pregnancy? Could you bond at all? I was kind of in denial that I was pregnant. Like I definitely was very removed from the pregnancy. And I had a really hard time once I started like showing that I was pregnant because I was so removed and trying to like protect myself because we were just waiting for her to pass away any day. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Well, let's move forward a little bit. You mentioned that 39 weeks, you were supposed to be induced, but something happened and you were induced a little bit earlier than that. So we had planned that we were going to do an unmonitored labor because after the discussions we had had, we had kind of decided that we want to have a big family. And so our daughter was measuring really small and every week she was flipping back and forth from being breech or not breech. So we didn't know what position she was going to be in. So the chances of me needing to have a lateral incision if I had a C-section were really high. I was delivering at Brigham and Women's in Boston and they had said they were fine with a breach delivery if she was breached. We had discussed that really if something emergent happened and we needed an emergency C-section that we really wouldn't get much time with her and the time we did get with her, I would be groggy. So we had just decided not to do that and just that we were going to do an unmonitored labor. I think it was like right when I hit 37 weeks, they called me and the hospital had changed their policy that if you were being induced, you could not do an unmonitored labor. And they had talked with lawyers and they had tried to make an exception with me. They couldn't get it to work. So they had talked about me switching hospitals and delivering down the road. And then we just kind of were trying to figure out what we were going to do. And I think we had decided we were just going to do a monitored labor then, but we would try and make it so I couldn't see the monitors. I see. And so then a few days later, I lost my mucus plug, which that wasn't like too big of a deal. But then my fiance was working on my dad's roof and I had been up there with my daughter and I was having contractions all day, but I had had prodromal labor 
for a week with my first birth. So I was like, oh, it's nothing, nothing big. Like, so I was up all night that night having contractions, timing them, could not sleep. My fiance woke up, I told him, and he was like, he was like, you're in labor. And I was like, kind of in denial because they had slowed down. And he was like, he hadn't slept and was exhausted because it was the hottest day of the year and he had been up on the roof all day. He was like, okay, well, I'm going to go back to bed for a few hours and then we'll regroup. <laughs> I was like, okay. And to top it all off, our 14 month old at the time had ruptured her eardrum from an ear infection. Oh, that was <laughs> the worst. Yeah. So was, we were dealing with that too. All right. The sound of that baby crying means it's time for this week's segment of Birth It Up Babies. All right. This one says, Liesl, our baby boy decided to come a bit early. Uh Uh-oh, let's hear it. (laughs) Due to some bleeding and a few heart rate drops, I was induced at 37 weeks. Birth was, according to my doctor, super quick. Only, and she put only in quotes, 24 hours from start of induction to delivery. And I wouldn't know what I would have done were not the information from your classes. Oh, yeah. I mean, 24 hours, I would say is, I mean, I wouldn't call it like a short, short, short labor, but that's pretty normal, especially for a first time mom and being induced at 37 weeks. She says, I was aware of what was going on. I was able to advocate for myself and be flexible where need be. My husband was also able to ask questions and advocate for me when I wasn't able to from pain or tiredness. Yes, I love that. I love that she mentioned that because that is something that we talk about in the courses as well, how important it is to choose (laughs) wisely the people that are in your room. She says, it was painful and unexpected, never thought I'd need an induction, but beautiful. Oh, I was so happy to be able to do it without an epidural, which was always my wish. I had a couple of minimal tears, two different spots, but I was ready for them from being so well informed. Thanks again for all that you do. Oh, I love it. Oh, so great. All right, if you want to check out the course that this mom took, she took Birth It Up the Natural Series, and you can head over to mommylabornurse.com and click on the Natural Series. All right, let's get right back into this week's episode. And so he woke up and we were kind of like, well, my contractions had stopped. So we were like, well, we should just go down to Boston anyway so that we're down there because I had gone in earlier to the hospital in Vermont and gotten checked when I lost my mucus plug and had been having some contractions. And they basically told me if if I was in labor that they wouldn't fly us down to Boston. It was clear that we were not priority and whatnot. They had the prostaglandin, so they could have kept her PDA open until heart surgery, but you could tell that they had no face in it. So I was like, this is not the safest place for her to be born. And I kind of like knew we needed to go down. So we started packing because we hadn't packed anything yet. I left our house at like nine o'clock. I started having contractions while we were packing. So we left our house at like nine o'clock at night. It's like a three and a half, four hour drive to Boston from where we live. The whole time we were in the car, my contractions were three minutes apart, lasting a minute long. How did you drive for three and a half hours? Oh my gosh. I honestly don't even know. We were like in the car for half an hour and my fiance was like, you need to look up how to deliver a baby on the side Uh, of the road. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I was like, I'm not doing that. I was like, I can't, I'm not manifesting it. He was like quiet for a few minutes and he's like, no, you, you need to look this up. We need to know in case you 
have this baby because you're having contractions. But I kind of in my head knew that Miss Hitchcock was like a halfway point. So I was like, we've got, I know that if I can get to there and then if we get close to Boston, you know, just call an ambulance and there's lots of hospitals around. I was like breathing through contractions, what and everything. And I was 37 weeks and five days at this point. And so we got into the city like right at midnight, probably. So we were like 40 minutes out from the hospital. And I started, I was in transition then at that point. So I was like screaming for the rest of the car ride, woke my daughter up. We got to the hospital and the valet was like, he was great. He brought a wheelchair right out. They got me in. They were like triaging me and you could like hear it echoing because it was like right in the main entrance. But they were wheeling me up and they were like, do you need to push? And I was like, I don't know. So they brought me right into a room. I was six centimeters dilated. And so they were like, oh, you've got time. What not? I mean, that's not nothing though. Like six centimeters, like especially for a three and a half hour uh, drive. I think I was actually might've been five at first and then I went to six, but I tried to call and I couldn't get through. So they didn't know I was coming. (laughs) So the nurses in the room didn't really know like what the plan was. So they actually hooked me up to the monitors at first and we heard her heartbeat. So we knew she was still alive. And then we explained our plan and they took it off, but it was nice that I did get to hear that at first and have that reassurance. And so then I had asked for an epidural and there was an emergency in the OR. So they couldn't get the anesthesia couldn't come and the IV team was busy for IV pain meds. So I had nitrous. They checked me again. They came in like 15 minutes later, maybe to give, and they were checked me before they started the epidural and I was at six centimeters. So they started to place the epidural. It was like 1220 AM. And so they were placing the epidural and they had a complete sterile field. So my fiance needed to be out of the room. So they were placing the epidural. They got it taped up and they were giving me the test dose, I think. And I said, I needed to push. And they were like, no, you're fine. You don't need to push. And I was like, no, I need to push. And so I laid down. I like kind of like pushed them aside and I laid down and pushed for four minutes she was born (laughs) she was breathing and everything but it was it was crazy because I had said like right before right when I got checked in I was like I'm supposed to deliver in the operating room like we're supposed to have NICU down here we're supposed to have a bunch of doctors and they were like oh no it's fine you have plenty of time like you're not going to deliver anytime soon you have a while to go so there was nobody like I started pushing and NICU got came in the room right as she was born our 14 month old was in the room. Like my fiance was holding her. She watched her be born and one of the nurses held her so he could cut the cord. And so it was just ah! Lucille. Is that Imogene only? We're talking about Imogene. Yeah. It's, she's fine. She can stay. I just know how sometimes with my kid and I'm like trying to do something and I'm like, <laughs> I had had her set up in her room. And she just <laughs> wants to come in. We're talking about when Imogene was born and you were there. What your, my ear, ear yeah, you you ruptured your eardrum. Yeah. Why were they teething? Yeah, it's because you were getting your molars. It's like, I remember, Mom. I <laughs> how, how did that rupture my eardrum? Because of the infection. We got you medicine when we were down in Boston. Can I finish talking to her now? <laughs> and now I hear your little baby. Like, she's Yeah, she's snoring while <laughs> still attached. but they took her right up to the NICU. And then after I had done my like two hour wait, I went up and saw her for a few hours and then went and 
kind of slept. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, she had gone to the NICU, right? And did you get to hold her or anything right before she went? They put her on my chest really fast. Okay. But I was shaking really bad from the epidural, which did not get to work. And the fake epidural. They were like, maybe it'll work for the placenta. <laughs> You're like, I don't need it for that. <laughs> no. They put her on my chest and I was kind of like, all I could say was, is she okay? Is she breathing? They told me she was good. And so, you know, that was good. So my fiance and our daughter went up to the NICU with her right away. So they went up with her and they did all of her intake and everything up there. And the NICU was like two floors above. So she got an elevator ride and everything. And then we were in the NICU at that hospital for like four days until we transferred for her open heart surgery. Gotcha. So tell me before we, cause I want to hear about that surgery too. How was your first meeting with her besides, you know, really the first meeting, but going up to the NICU. So she was actually doing really well when she was first born, they had her on blow by oxygen, but she, you know, like we had expected she would probably need to be intubated right away if, or more. The only help she was receiving was the blow by. And then that was only for like 24 hours that she had the oxy hood on. And then like, I think the next day they took it off and she would have DSAT periods where we would need to give her additional oxygen. But other than that, she did really well. But so it was great to go up, you know, it was like three o'clock in the morning. I was exhausted, but it was great to just go up and see her. I don't think I got to hold her that night. I think she was in bed with the oxygen on and they wanted her to just be receiving the oxygen, but I got to hold her in the morning when I went up. Gotcha. How big was she? She was five pounds, 2.2 ounces. Okay. And I believe she was like 18 inches long. Okay. That's not like tiny, tiny. No, she was in Vermont. She was measuring first percentile because Vermont has big babies. <laughs> and then oh. in Boston, we were measuring like no. third percentile, I think. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So Let's talk about her surgery and transfer and everything. Remind me again, was she going all the way back up to Vermont or was this a different hospital? No. So she was born at Brigham and Women's in Boston. They actually just have a hallway that connects Brigham and Women's to Boston Children's Hospital. Got it. Okay. I was like, wait a second, because you mentioned transfer and I'm like, wait, I thought she went down here because she had to be at the good hospital. Yes. (laughs) So yeah, if you like need to go to Boston Children's right away, you normally deliver at Brigham and Women's since they're connected. They can just walk over there rather than it being like an ambulance, even just to go across the street. Cause there's like four hospitals all right there. She had a couple heart defects. Her most severe was she had coarctation of the aorta and she had a complete coarctation. So her aorta was in two parts. It wasn't connected. And then she had a large VSD. So a I'm not even going to ventricular septal defect. Yes. And then she (laughs) also had, she had a leaky tricuspid valve, which that wasn't really a big deal, but the co-arc was she needed open heart surgery. They had her on prostaglandins. I can't say that word (laughs) to keep her PDA open so that her heart could still function. The VSD could have waited for surgery. They would normally repair that around six months old, but hers was large enough that they wouldn't be able to do it in the cath lab and it would be another open heart surgery. So they closed her VSD, reconstructed her aorta and closed her PDA all at four days old. Oh, wow. Wow. And what was their 
I mean, that seems like a lot for for a four day old little tiny baby. What were they telling you at this time in terms of her prognosis afterwards? So those first four days before she had the open heart surgery were just completely full of testing because we weren't sure of the functionality of her kidneys. And so it had been explained to us that basically if her kidneys weren't functioning, she wasn't going to be able to go on ECMO. And so we needed to find out how much her kidneys, if her kidneys were functioning. She also needed to have a brain MRI. So normally with trisomy 13, a lot of babies have holoprone cephaly. Is that how you pronounce that? Where the brain does not separate into two hemispheres. It's just. Now you're going to quiz me. I can look it up and we can say it together. Um, But keep going, keep going. Her brain was in two hemispheres. So she was better off in that aspect, but she had Dandy Walker syndrome. Okay. Holoprone. I'm looking it up. Holo. Yeah. I don't even know how to say it. Holoprosynphaly. This is embarrassing for any other nurses that are listening who actually deal with (laughs) I'm like, I've never seen this word before. I don't remember this from nursing school, but yes, that is the word that you were trying to describe earlier. (laughs) We had like ultrasounds. We had an MRI on her brain. She needed echoes on her heart. And she needed like two MRIs because she went down to the MRI the first time and it, something was wrong with the machine or something. And so like we were hardly seeing her and I had family that had driven down to try and meet her and it was just crazy. They were happy with how her brain looked. It looked good, but just because something looks good with trisomy 13 doesn't mean that it's going to work well because the cells are all abnormal. And even though they look fine, they can really just have issues at any point in time. There's really no telling. And so that's kind of what we were described. So we, I think we were given a 50, 50 chance at her making it out of open heart surgery. And we just kind of had to decide, like, are we going to send her to surgery? Are we going to just enjoy the time we have with her? And so that was pretty difficult because we weren't sure, like, if we were going to waste any time we could have with her, we decided on surgery. And so like your cardiologist is not the surgeon. So we didn't know like who was going to do her surgery until the morning of. She was first case of the day. They called us at like 3 a.m. that they were transferring her over into the SICU. They needed our permission to transfer hospitals. And so when we woke up, we went and we spent time with her in pre-op and then we got to walked her down for surgery and we met her surgeon while they were prepping her. So we asked him, we were like, what are we looking at? You know, like, what is your take on this case? And the surgeon that did her surgery, he's the head neonatal cardiac surgeon at Boston Children's. He was like, this is no big deal. It's like, I did one of these yesterday. He would seemed kind of cocky, but you needed that. Like he knew what he was doing and he was not worried about the surgery. And that was the reassurance that we needed. The surgery actually went a lot faster. She was in the operating room for, I think, six hours total. And then the surgery was about four hours. So when she came out, what did she look like? Probably tubes everywhere. And- it was pretty crazy. So we couldn't go up right away. She had to settle in. They brought her back to the cardiac ICU. And we had to wait, I think, two hours before we could go up and see her just because there was so much stuff going on. So when we went up, she was intubated. She had an umbilical line. She had a pick line in her arm. She had 
an ivy in her head. What is a pickle line? A pick line is a like deeper ivy. Nothing to do with pickles. <laughs> it's good when you're in the hospital. It helps you. So she had two chest tubes. She had pacing wires. They were able to close her after surgery, which they weren't sure if they were going to have to leave her open with a vacuum and close her up a few days later, but they were able to close her chest. So that was good. And then I think like three or four IV pumps. So there was just so many medicines running. That was the craziest thing to see was all of the machines and then the ventilator and everything. And then she was just insanely swollen. You're like all these machines are having like a tiny little baby right here. So tell me, did she, I know you mentioned in utero, they found out that she had the cleft lip and the cleft palate. Other than that, did she have any physical, did she look any, have any like physical differences? Both of her feet were rocker bottom. So she had kind of like a club foot. And then she had no extra digits, which is kind of rare. Normally with trisomy 13, you have extra digits, but she didn't have any extra digits. I think it was really just that she had the rocker bottom feet and then her mouth and then everything else was like internal. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you a mama that already knows you want an epidural? Did you know that childbirth education is still super important to a more confident and powerful birth? It's true. Here at MLN, we know that every mama can benefit from a birth class tailored to their needs, which is why Birth It Up, the epidural series was born. Learn more about how to get educated and totally prepared for your epidural birth at mommylabornurse.com slash epidural birth. So tell me now, I know eventually you guys leave the hospital, right? With her? Yeah. So we were in the CICU for about four days and then she started having apnea issues when they had extubated her. They had done BiPAP and CPAP with the mask because of her cleft lip and palate that made it more complicated. So when we were in the NICU, we had done a few trials of extubating her. And she just was never able to be successfully extubated. So she ended up getting a trach placed. And so she had a trach placed in a feeding tube. She got a GJ feeding tube placed. So we fed her stomach for a while. We just did continuous feeds into her intestines. So once she had her feeding tube placed first, and then she had her trach placed. And then about 10 days after she had her trach, we were transferred back up to Vermont to learn CARES. We were there for about three weeks to learn how to manage the trach. And then, so she came home from the hospital for the first time when she was 74 days old. And so we were home for like a week before we had to be readmitted. We started having feeding issues. And so they had to replace her feeding tube. And because she was so small, Boston show they didn't have a typical GJ tube wouldn't fit into her intestines. And so Boston Children's kind of like rigs one up where they take an oral feeding tube and feed it through the J port so that it's a small tube. So there's still room for feeds to back up if need be. And that had gotten clogged because of all of her medicines. And so Vermont had just kind of decided that they were going to feed through the G port then and replace your feeding tube with just a G tube. They had told us then that her intestines were failing and that she, when that stopped working, she stopped tolerating feeds. They told us that her intestines were failing and she was sent us home on end of life care. And this was the week after. So she was like 
80 some days old now. This right? was in or October. Was okay. We had been home for a week and then gone back. Okay. Gotcha. So we had gone back. This was in October and she was born at the very end of July. Okay. We had been home then on end of life care. She had a central line place. So I was her main caretaker at home because there's not a lot of home nursing in Vermont. So I did all of her trach changes. I did all of her medicine. I administered like IV phenobarb and everything, which was crazy to have to do. And so she had an IV pump. And when I managed feeds, like if she wasn't tolerating feeds, I would bump down feeds and put her on the IV pump and man it kind of like balance out her fluids. So we had been home for a week and she was still doing well. And Vermont had told us that she was dying. So we loaded her up in the car and drove back down to Boston to the emergency room down there because we wanted their opinion. They thought it was just because she was getting fed into her stomach that we were having issues. So we were down there for a while. While we were down there, she had like a really bad UTI, but she lost like a pound in a day with the UTI. Like it was insane. Yes. So she had a UTI. So with the UTI, we got antibiotics. They did a reflux study. I'm not going to remember what the acronym for that study is where they checked to see if she was having reflux from her bladder back into her kidneys. And she was, she was just on a daily antibiotic then to try and combat another UTI. And then we went back home. We were home for a while. And then around, it was Thanksgiving. We went back to the hospital the day after Thanksgiving. She stopped tolerating feeds again. We had a great pediatrician who would come to our house so we didn't have to take her to the office. And she was not tolerating feeds and she had had diarrhea for like a week. And so she was like, when you say she wasn't tolerating feeds, what would happen? So we were feeding into her intestines. And so at this point she had had a GGA tube back in Boston, replaced it. And so what would happen was at her feeding tube site, she would leak stomach bile because it was really from her intestines. It was backing up because she was having low motility. So it wasn't breaking down the feeds in her intestine. And so it was going back into her stomach. It was trying to find a way out. And so it was coming out then of her stoma of her feeding tube site. And so our doctor had come and she was like, she needs to go in. So we drove her to the ER in Vermont. And when we got there, like her temperature, I think she was only like 94 degrees. Like she was like very cold. Oh my gosh. Her potassium. I'm not even going to remember what her potassium was. I think it was like it was the lowest that any of the doctors and nurses had ever seen somebody have a potassium and still be alive is what we were told. And so she was moved back up to the PICU in Vermont and we had to wait a few days because she was not stable enough to transfer down to Boston. Basically she was too critical and we were told basically like be prepared for them to need to start doing chest compressions at any time with how critical she was in her potassium levels and everything from being so dehydrated. And so then we also had a giant snowstorm, which made it even better. Like that she was supposed to go one night and it wasn't safe enough for the ambulance to drive down. And so if we waited until the next morning and if the ambulance wasn't going to be able to drive, they were going to have to fly her down. But the ambulance was able to drive down, which was good. So we went back down to Boston and all of our nurses there said the same thing, that her potassium was the lowest they'd ever seen someone ever be alive. And so... That was our final admission because while we were there, it became clear that her intestines were shutting down and she didn't qualify for a bowel transplant due to having 
trisomy 13. There was nothing else we could do. We had talked about doing TPN and trying to give her bowel rest, but the director of the NICU in Boston was like, really like, I think that's just prolonging the inevitable at this point. And, you know, we could tell she was getting tired and everything. So, and our goal had always been to get her home as safely as possible to have as much time as we could with her. So we, from there, we just decided that we were going to bring her home and enjoy what time we had left with her. And we had, it was almost exactly a month. It was a little bit longer than a month. We went home on December 13th and she passed away on January 17th then. So tell me what it was like that month. It was pretty insane. There was a lot of days that we really could tell that she was getting tired and we weren't sure like how much longer. And so we slept with her in our room so that I could wake up and do everything and hear all of her monitors. And so, and around like 3 a.m. on January 17th, she started desatting. Her heart rate tanked into the 60s. I bagged her up and she came back and everything was fine. And then that morning I was giving her her medicine. And I remember saying to my fiance, I was like, I don't think she's with us anymore. I really think she had left us in the middle of the night when that episode happened. Yeah. I was like, she's not going to last long. Like, I don't think she's really even here anymore. And so we were just making sure to spend a lot of time together because we were pretty sure it was going to be that day. And then she, I had bagged her up a couple more times that day. And then it was like 11.15 or shortly after and we were in the living room and her heart rate started to go down. And my fiance was like, where's the bag? And I was like, Travis, this is it. (laughs) And so we disconnected the ventilator and just held her and turned off the machine so that there wouldn't be a ton of beeping. She just passed away then quickly and peacefully in our arms. And we were all right there, which is what we'd wanted. We were at home. We weren't in the hospital. And she's like, I just want to be in the episode. I mean, I don't know why you're trying to get me in another room. Like, (laughs) well, she really likes to talk about imaging. She remembers a lot, which most people think is crazy, but she'll like talk about like what color sponges we use to clean her mouth and everything. And so she she likes to talk about her. Well, that's good. Yes. Right. (laughs) So I do want to ask you one last question before we wrap up. For anybody else who's listening who is in a similar position, maybe they've found out that it's either trisomy 13 or another diagnosis during pregnancy and they're carrying, you know, to term basically like in the same situation. Did you find any resources helpful or have any advice for those moms? So I honestly, during my pregnancy, I was kind of, since I was in that state of denial, I didn't really reach out to any organizations until after she was born. I have since, you know, connected with a lot of great organizations. A lot of parents of trisomy children have even created their own foundations to help to give back and to give resources to those who are facing these diagnoses. So like Able Speaks is a really great organization. Evelyn's Treehouse has been great for us. And then there's even just on Facebook groups, So I'm in the Trisomy 13 Facebook group. And then there's a rare Trisomy Facebook group as well. And just Instagram. I've connected with a ton of people on Instagram. Well, that's great. And we will definitely link those resources that you just mentioned in the show notes page. I know how great community is for things like this. You know, I've had people come on podcast episodes before and talk about their experience, whether it's they have a stillbirth or they have a diagnosis like this. And it seems like 
that answer is the same, that community is really so, so beneficial in times like these. I have a childhood friend who a few months after Imogene passed away, she received a trisomy 13 diagnosis with her son. And so, you know, like I was able to be there for her and kind of help to share some of those resources with her. And just unfortunately, their son passed away only a few hours after birth. But just being able to have those connections and have someone who understands like what you're going through, it's a lot easier to talk to than just your everyday friends who just haven't walked that road because it's such a complex road to walk. Yeah. And it's so different for everyone. You know, it's like some babies pass away still in utero. Some, like you said, your friend, it's within a few hours and some, you know, in your case it's months, but so it can be really, really hard to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Shay, thank you so much. And thank you. What is your daughter's name? I want to tell her thank you too, because she was on the podcast too. <laughs> Lucy. <laughs> thank you, Lucy, <laughs> for coming on with mom. Hi. <laughs> So yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Do you have like a social media or anything that you want to share maybe for people who want to connect with you? So my Instagram is just J period S H E A period M A Y S. I do have a private account, but if you want to like message me, you can definitely message me and I will accept your follow if Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, we'll put your link in the show notes page two for people to check out. Thank you so much for coming on Shay and Lucy. (laughs) Your new baby too. I heard her too. (laughs) Yeah. Winona was there too. Winona was there. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. All right, guys, that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and letting me be a part of your motherhood journey. It is truly an honor. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And I love hearing what you guys think of the podcast. So if you're liking what you hear or you have a suggestion, I'd be so grateful if you'd go ahead and leave me a review wherever you're listening to help more mamas just like you find the show. What do you think? Are you starting to feel a little more confident about your pregnancy and birth? Well, if you want more, be sure to head on over to mommylabornurse.com slash podcast for today's show notes and a library of episodes so you can keep getting educated before your upcoming birth. And while you're over there, be sure to check out the blog and learn about our online birth classes. Find it all and more over at mommylabornurse.com slash podcast. See you next week. Same time, same place.